Let us turn now in God's holy word to Psalm number 1. Psalm 1. Psalm 1. This is a a new series that we'll be starting uh, and it will take place in the last Sabbath, Lord willing, of every month. That is the plan at the moment anyway. And it's going to be called Loving the Psalms. Loving the Psalms. Now, I think you might have noticed um, our denomination, we, we sing the Psalms in worship, in praise to God. And we sing only the Psalms in praise to God as part of our worship toward God uh, as the singing element of it. And we sing what's called a cappella. A cappella, which is an interesting word. Uh, a cappella, we understand in English, means without musical instruments. If you got a group together and they were singing a cappella, you'd know that they're not, they're not going to be this group of five people and it's all going to be the voice. But the word a cappella itself, it's interesting. It means in the style of the church. Literally, that's what it means. It literally means in the manner of the chapel or church. Church music once for many centuries, the early church, much of the medieval church, and also much of the Reformed Church was like this. This is the norm. Now, I don't want to make an argument from church history, but I think today we may feel like the strange ones singing the Psalms. But if you go through church history, we're by far not the only ones at all. If you look through church history, actually the norm is the Psalms being sung a cappella in the style of the church. And also... There were times of, these psalms provided great comfort. The, the covenanters, if you read the martyr stories and other things, they would be being martyred and they would sing the psalms in praise to God as they were being killed. And the psalms, see I don't want to just make it a kind of an intellectual argument of, hey, this is why we do this. I want us as a church to love the Psalms, to love this part of Holy Scripture. It's not just about, here's our inspired hymn book, and no doubt I'll be making comments here and there about things like this, but the primary focus of this series, this specific series, is that we love what the Psalter is teaching. And when we sing every week, we would sing with understanding. See, there's lots of the Psalter we don't really understand at times, is there? There's times we're going to sing about animal sacrifice. And you might say, well, what has that got to do with anything with me in the New Covenant era? So there's all these things that we're going to be looking through. And also how the, the Psalter is a wonderful encouragement. If you're going through some of the hardest times, the Psalms has great comfort, great encouragement And it keeps our eyes focused on better times and takes us away from distraction. I want to quote from somebody, a very famous figure in church history. And he said this, The Psalter ought to be a precious and beloved book. If for no other reason than this, it promises Christ's death and resurrection so clearly. And pictures his kingdom and the condition and nature of all Christendom. That it might well be called 
a little Bible. In it is comprehended most beautifully and briefly everything that is in the entire Bible. Now, who said that? Was that a a covenanter? Was that someone who maybe we might think who came up with this idea of singing the Psalms only? It was Martin Luther. Now, if you know anything about Martin Luther, Martin Luther doesn't, didn't agree with us. I didn't agree with us when he was on this earth on this issue. Martin Luther wrote many hymns. He wrote, and they were accompanied by instruments as well. But Martin Luther, when he disagreed with us in worship, he loved the Psalms. He absolutely loved the Psalms and had a deep appreciation. He saw the Psalms as a mini Bible. As a mini Bible. All the truths are there. In it, he said, is comprehended most beautifully and briefly everything that is in the entire Bible. So as we go through this, may we also have a love for the Psalms. Especially as we sing them as a church together in praise to God. So Psalm number one. Let us hear God's holy and infallible word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy and infallible word. This psalm introduces us to the Psalter. It's the first psalm in the Psalter. But it also introduces us to book one of the Psalter. The the Psalter is, you might notice in some of your Bibles, is divided up into five different books. And these have been arranged in such a way by the Spirit of God for a specific reason. We're not always clear as human beings why those reasons are, but the Spirit of God guided God's people at various different points, mostly penned by David, to to compile this inspired hymn book. And here we're introduced to what it means to be blessed. Blessed. Now, it is possible to translate this word in verse 1, blessed, happy. But the problem with the word happy is it can be misunderstood. It can be misunderstood. What makes the ungodly unha- makes the godly happy makes the ungodly happy are very, very different. This is talking about being blessed in an eternal way that shall never end. It's eternal. It cannot be taken away from this person. This psalm speaks of The only way to be blessed. And not only does it introduce a psalter, it introduces us to a specific man. 
a very, very specific man who is eternally blessed. Blessed in a way that will matter in a hundred years. Unlike the happiness, the fading happiness of this world, it will matter in a hundred years, in one thousand years, in ten thousand years, beyond time even. Blessed in a way that can never be taken from you if this description from verses 1 to 3 describes you. In the way of righteousness, found only one, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It introduces us to this man and it introduces us to his immoral character. The first point we're going to look at in this psalm is life only in Christ. Life only in Christ. Verse 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in, in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. So we're introduced to this blessed man. We, we see his moral character. We see his rejection of evil. Now, let us think for a second. Does this describe you or I? In one sense, it doesn't, does it? In one sense, we look at this and we think, well, have I fallen for the counsel of the wicked? The word ungodly there can also be translated wicked. Or, or have I at times not departed from the path of sinners? Or have there been times when I have stayed and rested and found myself too at ease with the mocking and the scorners of this world? And all of us have fallen, haven't we? At various times in these areas. It doesn't really, in one sense, it doesn't describe any of us. And if we, and this could be actually one of the reasons why we may struggle to sing this psalm. Isn't it? We look at this and go, how is this speaking of me at all? But who is this man? Who is this man with this walk? Who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or the wicked? He doesn't follow the advice of this world. He doesn't follow the supposed wisdom of this world. And this man, described here, perfectly rejects this evil scheming of the wicked. Now, of course, there are times we fall into the sins mentioned here. But who is this man? The Lord Jesus Christ. Every moment of his life, he is that man who did not walk in the counsel of the wicked, did not stand or remain in that path of sinners. He he departed from it. And also, he did not rest with those who would mock the truth, those scornful or mockers. However, at the same time, we can sing this. Because in another sense, it does describe us. One way it's describing another person. It doesn't describe our works because they're, in, they're not perfect. But how does it describe us for those who are in Christ? In Christ. Christ came in the form of a servant. He was born under the law. He obeyed the law perfectly. And he did the, these, what, what is spoken about here in verse 1. Does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. 
He came to obey the law perfectly. He reject evil in a per- rejected evil in a perfect way, was tempted in all points, yet without sin. He kept this perfectly. And how does his righteousness, how does his perfect record become ours? By faith. By faith alone. In him, this, in him we are in that perfect man. And when, Christ, when, when God looks at us, he sees Christ, he sees that perfect record, he no longer sees our blemishes. Isn't that wonderful? As we come to pray before God, as we come to worship before God, as we come into his presence, we, know, we need not fear that the blemishes of our listening to the counsel of the ungodly, of standing in the path of sinners, is going to affect our relationship with God if we're in Christ. He sees that perfect record because there's life only in Christ. Now that life in Christ is described in verse 3. He shall be like a tree. So it gives us kind of a picture of a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. And whatever he does shall prosper. It's a pretty impressive tree. If you were thinking a tree that planted by the rivers of water brings forth fruit in its season and the leaf shall not fade, shall not wither in any way, shape, or form life. This is a picture of life. This is what life looks like. And it's a picture of eternal life. This life never ever fades away. There's even a picture at the end of the book of Revelation. Of this tree and the leaf bringing healing to all those. The tree of life described at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Is then seen at the end of the book of Revelation. There is life In this perfect man. This man who did not walk according to the living of the world. And as we look at that description in verse 1. That describes the picture of life. If you think of all of life. We're either walking aren't we? We're either standing up. Or we're sitting down. It's kind of a bit of a summary of all of life. Isn't it? Describing how we are to reject evil. At all turns, in all our postures, in all our positions. A complete rejection of this fallen world and its system. Now, I'm going to quote a verse from what we're really going to be looking at next Sabbath morning, but this is from 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world. And this is really what's talked about here in the first verse. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Isn't that interesting? Do not love the world. Reject the world. Reject the counsel of the ungodly. Reject the path of sinners. Reject the seed of the scornful. Because really it's another way of saying this is it all is in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. If you actually think of Adam and Eve, how did they fall? The lust of the flesh. They desired something. The lust of the eyes. They saw the fruit. It was good to, good to make one wise. And the pride of life. Pride. Pride. 
It's not of the Father, but of the world. Now, while we do not perfectly fit this description in verse 1, there is another sense in which it is like us. Not perfectly, but if we're in Christ, if we're born again of the Spirit of God, if we've been brought into union with Christ, aren't we going to be like him? Not perfectly. We still have that old and a new nature uh, fighting with each other. But there will be, to a degree, that there will be fruit. Good fruit. Verse 3 again. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. That brings forth its fruit in the season. So if there is a tree and you see a tree and you want to say, hey, is there evidence of life here? You're going to look for the fruit, aren't you? Aren't you? If there's no fruit, season comes and you examine the fruit and there's nothing there. What would you do? It concludes no life. He'd conclude actually that the tree is probably dead. And you chop it down. And you may use it for firewood. Life. Life in Christ. And there's evidence of that life. In a believer. Now this fruit doesn't save anyone. But it shows. That we are in him. That God has brought about a change. Number two now. Number two, liberty only in Christ. Liberty only in Christ. So we've looked at life only in Christ, now liberty only in Christ. There is only life in this perfect man described here. Blessed is the man. And then it describes in verse two, but his delight, he's rejected evil because he does not take pleasure in the evil. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And as we sing later, may we all sing with liberty, freedom, joy, peace. We, the shackles have been removed. We're no longer slaves to our sin. That's in the spirit in which we are to sing. His righteousness, the righteousness that has been described in this verse, that blessed, perfect man described here, that righteousness becomes ours by faith. Oh, but you have no idea what I've done. If you have looked to Jesus, you've been washed. If you've looked to Jesus, his righteousness becomes yours. I think this is very important for us to wrap our minds around because if we don't, we will think for all of our Christian walk, that we will die one day and God will scowl at us. Why do I say that? Yeah, we, we, we believe we're saved, yes. But we don't have the sense of God delights in us because of Christ. You see the difference? In one, we're almost thinking, and I, I think I struggled with this for a number of years myself. You come before Christ and it's almost like he puts up with us because of Christ. No, 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 no. He delights in us because of Christ. Think of the most pleasant aroma. You come home from work, you're tired and there's a great smell of food as you come through the kitchen. It fills your heart with joy. There is a delight found in the believer. God finds delight. It's, it's all through Christ. It's not because of us. It can't possibly be because of us. But there is that delight. 
And that liberty, knowing this, should bring us to love him, shouldn't it? And his law. And his law really is his moral character. Do you ever have a good friend and you think, you think very highly of his character? You'll tell, oh, he's very honest in business. And, and you probably sing praises of someone who is a good friend of yours. But the law of God, it's not just a list of do's and don'ts. It's more than that. It's God's character. It's who God is. He's a God of truth. He's a God of love. He's a God that shows perfect, righteous love toward neighbor. This is his character. And this perfect, blessed man delights in the law of God because it's good. Because it's his character. Because it's his goodness. Christ delighted while on this earth. And he still delights in it. In the law of God. If you look at verse 2 once again. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And then verse 6. For the Lord knows. First part of verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. I think we can sometimes miss what that means. Whenever we see the word knows, we think of, well, God knows everything, doesn't he? But this is not the sense in which it's talking about here. This is a relationship knows. If you go throughout the Bible and you look at the use of the word know, it's a relationship. It's that deep, intimate knowing. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. He knows them. Christ has kept that law perfectly. No longer under the dominion of sin. The wrath of God is no longer hanging over you. The head of the serpent has been crushed. Genesis 3 verse 15. It talks of two seeds. The seed of the woman. That's Christ. And the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the serpent has been defeated by Christ. Giving life and liberty to all who trust in him and him alone. And that liberty is not just a freedom from hell. And the consequences of sin. But it's also a freedom in this world from being a slave to it. And when you're free, think of, um, think of uh, when they were seeking to leave Egypt. God's people, let my people go. They were seeking for freedom. To what? To worship God. That's the reason. The freedom and the positive reason. Yes, to get away from Pharaoh. He wasn't a nice guy and he treated him horribly and labor rights were all bad, all that kind of... No, no, it's more than that. Worship God. To delight in him. Freedom. Yes, it's obviously important that we're free from death and hell. If we look at uh, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Two or three verses I want to read there from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's speak of this freedom. Verses 55, 56, and 57 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. Who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death, this great enemy, defeated. Where is your sting? What can it do to us? Oh hell or Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. 
And the strength of sin is the law. We've had victory over these things in Christ, this perfect law keeper. This perfect man who lived, perfectly rejected all that would bring us into slavery and condemnation. And now free, free from the tyranny of our own sin, free to delight in the law of God. You see before, when you're a slave of sin, you don't delight in the law of God. The law of God really just condemns you. The law of God screams judgment. That's why Luther couldn't stand it when he looked at it. Martin Luther, he looked at the law of God and he just realized he couldn't go to confession enough. He realized that his own works, he was tormented. But then he looked at Romans 1. And he saw that the just shall live by faith. Justified by faith alone. Apart from the works of the law. That freedom. And now, Luther could delight in the law. Because the law then is a wonderful thing. Something we wish to be changed and conformed into its likeness. Yet at the same time, it no longer condemns us in Christ. I think we've often forgotten this great, wonderful privilege that we have to be a Christian. The big danger we do today with the gospel is we treat God as a means to an end. And the gospel becomes, oh yeah, I did that. As if it's like a vaccine we got and I'm immune from all the effects of hell. And I say this with a heavy heart when I hear this from people. We cannot treat the gospel as some kind of a backup plan just in case hell is real. It is not a means to an end. God himself is the reward himself. See the difference? Do you ever feel used by a person? People just use you and you're not, they're not really friends of you. But do we see God himself as the reward himself? Even in this world. Yes, in the world to come. Yes, we're going to heaven. Praise God for all this. But do we see him as delightful? Because if we don't really see him as delightful, we're not really going to enjoy heaven very much, are we? Is God enough? He's infinite. Infinite. I was thinking about this the other day with, with my girls and we were talking about the Pacific Ocean, the, the size of the Pacific Ocean. And could you imagine going down to the very depths of the Pacific Ocean? I don't know how many miles down it is. And it's, it's incredibly wide, it's incredibly deep. But our God has no bottom. He has no limits we will never in in eternity we will never exhaust our sense of worshipping and and wanting to worship him for all eternity because of he being infinite because of his moral goodness we won't just delight of the law of God we delight to a small crumbs degree in this world but in the world to come in its fullness. We, we shall awaken his likeness. And we will see him as he is. It will no longer be by faith. It will be we will see him. 
It's a substance. Faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We will see him one day. And we will delight in him in its fullness. And while we're on this earth, we get the great privilege to sing of his greatness, of his moral purity. So when we sing of this, may this be true of us, that we delight as well in the law of the Lord. That we delight in his blessings. That we delight in his liberty that he's given to us. To delight in this law. It says in Romans 6, verses 16 to 18. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are one slaves whom you obey, whether to sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness or servants of righteousness. You have not just been delivered and saved and placed in Christ by the work of the Spirit of God just to avoid hell. But far more than that, well, we're still on this earth. We're still breathing. I think we can often forget. I was talking to a, a, a dear lady. I think she's in her mid-90s um, last year and she was wondering, why has the Lord left me on this earth? You know, her, her husband had passed away a number of years before that. And I just said to her, look, the Lord has left you here for a reason. There is a good reason you are still here. We have been set free to delight in him, to glorify him. And when our time comes, he will bring us home. He is in control of all this. It is a delight, not a chore, to look into the law of God. Because look at this. In his law, he meditates day and night. You have to be pretty into something to think about something day and night. If you ever turn on, I don't know, sports news or things that you see people talk about football 24-7. Because they're so into it. They wake up thinking about it. You see these people so focused on it. to God those things are silly aren't they but here is the infinite God why wouldn't we think about him all day because he's so wonderful he's so amazing the word here meditate as well in his law he meditates day and night the word in, in the original it's got the idea of a cow chewing over and over something And it's also got the idea of one talking to you. Did you ever, you probably don't do it in front of people and when you get caught, you get kind of embarrassed about it. But you know when we're by ourselves, we kind of talk out loud. And we do. And that's actually the sense of this word to meditate day and night. We're talking to ourselves. We're not just reading the Bible in a vacuous way. We're kind of, it's going through our minds throughout the day. Oh, remember that, that verse I read earlier? Oh, what does that mean? And then something else comes into your mind. That's the idea. That it keeps going through our minds day and night. Number three now, lawless without Christ. Lawless without Christ. So life only in Christ. Liberty only in Christ. Number three now, lawless without Christ. Verse four 
Verse 4, there's a big change coming here. It says in verse 4, The ungodly are not so. The ungodly are not so. Now, we may miss this a bit in English, but in Hebrew it begins like this, Not so the ungodly. Actually, a very old translation, we went into Hebrew into Greek, the way it translates it is this, not so the ungodly, not so. There's such a, a contrast, there's such a, a break of this, um, of this psalm. And the phrase is repeated by this translator just to really go, here's the opposite. The ungodly, the wicked person is not so. He rejects the first three verses. Their life embraces the counsel of the wicked. Verse 1. It, it, it stands in the path of sinners. And it finds comfort sitting in the seat of the scornful. Or of mockers. They are different. They do not delight. The ungodly do not delight in the law of God. So, if you do not delight in the law of God, your, your life will be, well, lawless, chaotic. And this is what we see in the world, isn't it? We have a lawless, chaotic world. Well, it's a bit like, you know, you pull a thread in a jumper, you keep pulling, and before you know it, the whole jumper falls apart. And this is our society at the moment. They delight in other things, but not the things of God. And what kind of things did they delight in? In verse 4 it says this, But like the chaff which the wind drives away. Now, there's a picture here being used of in the harvest time. The chaff, of the chaff being removed. Now what happens to the harvest? The, the, the wheat is crushed. And what they do is they throw it up in the air. And the wind carries away the undesirable and unwanted elements, the waste really. And it's light. And you throw up in the air the wheat, what you actually want, falls back down and the chaff blows away. Gone. Light, it has no weight, it has no value. Undesirable. Such is every life. That is not in service to God. Has no value. In eternity has no value. Actually in the book of Ecclesiastes. When Solomon at the end of his life. He sees compared to eternity. That this world is but grasping at the wind. We were trying to grasp at the wind. It's not very successful. There's going to come a time. Where our lives will end. Our life is but a vapor. And it puffs and it's gone. And in a lawless life, a self-interested life, a life of serving self and thinking about self is worthless, absolutely worthless before the throne of grace. The life of a Christless billionaire. He might have all the money in the world, but this describes him. It's worthless. It is no weight. It is a waste. 
This is important as well that we get this across to the next generation. What really matters? What really matters? What's going to matter in a hundred years' time? It's not going to matter what kind of car you drive, how big your house is, or anything else like that. None of that's going to matter. Without Christ, it's chaff. It just blows away. And we need to, as well as we approach getting closer, we're all getting closer to our final breath. We're all getting closer to our our final heartbeat. What really matters is our service to Christ. If you've got five minutes left in this world, if you've got five months left in this world, five years, five decades, it amounts to the same thing. Use it all to serve God, to trust him. Because, dear friends, the riches you have in this world, they take wings and they fly away. Another thing to point out as well in this verse, the wind drives away the chaff. This word wind is actually, can also be translated spirit. Spirit. And that wind which carries away in the last day is going to be the spirit of God. Driving out all that have not trusted in Jesus Christ. And our final point this evening is this. Liable without Christ. Liable without Christ. So life only in Christ. Liberty only in Christ. Lawless without Christ. And liable without Christ. Now what happens if we have to pay for our sins? When, when this debt comes due. We're going to be liable. Answerable to it. That's what the word liable means. That we will be answerable. Before the court. To pay For our sins. And you probably think. Well we can't pay that. This is why hell is for all eternity. We can't pay it back. There's never going to come a point. Where the justice will have been satisfied. Because it is against an infinite God. We will pay for it. Without Christ. Our greatest deeds. Apart from Christ are worthless. Actually, all of us are wicked in the sense without Christ. This actually, verse 5, describes all of us without Christ. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. None of us can stand in the presence of God in our own works. And if any of us attempt to do so, we will be like those in verse 5. They shall not stand in the judgment. They will be driven from the presence of the Lord. Or sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And all those without Christ will get what we deserve. It will be justice. Pure justice. We often don't like to think about hell and what hell is. Hell is the perfect justice of God. And Jesus drank it all down in our place. He took the wrath of God. The, the sinner, the one who has not been washed from his sins, the one who has not trusted in Jesus Christ, will be driven. And look, friends, it doesn't matter what stage we come to Christ, but we must come to Christ. The thief on the cross, he didn't have a great track record. And on paper, the Pharisees probably looked a lot more attractive than the thief on the cross. But the thief on the cross 
is in paradise today. And many self-righteous Pharisees are in hell. It's a sobering thought. Sinners cannot enter heaven. Consider this quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon said this, Sinners cannot live in heaven. They would be out of their element. Sooner could a fish live upon a tree than the wicked in paradise. You see the picture he's using? Sooner could a fish live upon a tree than the wicked in paradise. Heaven would be intolerable hell to an impenitent man. That's an unrepented man. Even if he could be allowed to enter, but such a privilege shall never be granted to the man who perseveres in his iniquities. You see what Spurgeon is saying there? The sinner is going to hate heaven. He's not going to love heaven because he doesn't love God. And sooner could a fish live upon a tree than a sinner enter into heaven. Sinners face judgment, punishment. They cannot, they will be like the chaff. Imagine the chaff and the wind being blown away. They have no chance. And there's two groups of people described in the song. There are those in verse 5 and those who are in that man in verse 1. If we're in that man in verse 1, we have blessings. But if we are still in our own sins and our sins have not been dealt with by Christ, by the Spirit of God doing a work in our hearts, before God, we're still in verse 5. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. In one, we have mercy based upon the merits of another. In verse 5, we have our own merits. Which are you? Are you seen as righteous in Christ? And isn't this a wonderful thing? If you trust in Jesus Christ, if you've forsaken your sin, none of us have forsaken it perfectly. None of us have done it in the way that verse 1 describes, but you will be seen. You are seen today, if that is a reality, as blessed, as perfectly righteous and holy. Because no no other standard will be allowed to enter into heaven. Yes, we've been forgiven, but we've also been given a perfect record of law-keeping on top of it. Imagine that. Jesus lived on the earth, and he obeyed his parents at every point. Never once, in any way, in thought, in word, in deed, in any way, disobeying the Father. And that righteousness becomes ours if we would look to him and him alone. But look at verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Does he know you? Does he know you? Will he say to you, Come in, enjoy the presence of the Lord. Well done, good, a good and faithful servant. Or will he say this? Depart from me. I never knew you. Isn't that an interesting word it uses there? I never knew you. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous. How can I be seen as righteous? Come to Christ. Look to him. Look to him. And to him alone. Amen.